Good morning. It's good to be gathered with the people of God on the Lord's Day. Turn with me to John chapter 5. In your copy of God's Word, we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses, Lord willing. But I already got reminded that we fell back and people are going to be hungrier earlier. So we'll see if we get through all 16 of these verses. So we're opening a new chapter this morning. In, uh, in John chapter 5, we're also looking in immediately at the third miracle that John records out of the seven that make up the first structure of the book. And then there's one more at the end. There are technically eight. But the third sign miracle, uh, we're going to see that here in these first verses of chapter 5. But what we're really going to be looking at on overarching that is the nation of Israel's shift against Jesus. Up until now, he's pretty much enjoyed a pleasant reception, has he not? When we look at Jesus as he's interacting, nobody's really that mad at him. Nobody's really angry at him. Not everybody who welcomed him truly believed, but they nevertheless respected him and were kind to him, uh, treated him well. But here in chapter 5, we're going to see the tide begin to turn against Jesus. And in John's gospel, it happens fairly quickly. Now remember, John's not so much concerned with filling out a perfectly marked and annotated timeline of Jesus' life as he is about getting across a message. Not that the other gospel writers didn't have messages, they certainly did, but John's more about the, an impact. So he's given you seven big moments, these miracles, along with other interesting uh, interactions that Jesus has had. And this uh, dramatic moment is going to make that shift for us. As one of these markers, this third sign of Jesus healing a paralyzed man acts as sort of an expressway to Jesus' persecution. <clears throat> it's the on-ramp, really, if you think about it, an on-ramp that leads to the highway, and the highway leads to his death at Calvary's Hill. So John is taking these 15 verses, and what we're going to see here is we're going to see a sign for the on-ramp, we're going to journey on the actual on-ramp, and then we're going to get on the destination. The destination is the highway that leads to Calvary's cross. And this on-ramp is fast in the Gospel of John. Y'all ever try to get on I-35 in Denton? And, and then, I mean, the on-ramps are so short. Over, I don't know why they are, but then you go on I-45 in Madisonville, and your on-ramp's about a mile and a half. But then in Denton, to get on I-35, you got 16 and a half feet to figure out how to get up to 75 miles an hour. Otherwise, you're going to die. That's what John's doing. John's on that on-ramp. I mean, we're going immediately onto the on-ramp of Jesus being hated and now being persecuted. So we'll have to just keep our heads tied on straight and see. We'll roll the windows down, take it all in. But what we're going to see is a fast change of Jesus and his perspective against him. And in and amongst that, we're also going to learn much about who God is, who we are, and how ministry is conducted amongst sinful people, which is us. So join me. Look at verse 1. Verses 1 through 9 and a half is going to be our, uh, our sign. This is the sign that leads us on to the on-ramp. So verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There's a feast of the Jews. Now he's back south. Remember he went up north to Galilee? We saw that. He's, about, he's in Cana. The Capernaum official comes over, heals his son, all of those things. And now he's going back down to Jerusalem. There's a feast happening. Uh, and we don't know what feast it is. John typically says what feast it is, except for here. 
And it's probably one of the big feasts in Jerusalem, like the Passover, the Tabernacles, or a Feast of Pentecost. Uh, but rather, whatever feast it ended up being is, is not really the point. The point is that there's a lot of people gathered in Jerusalem. That's what we need to know. There's lots of people there. It's a big national feast. Now, verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades. So when John describes scenery, when John sets the scene, we need to pay attention. He's not giving us extraneous details. He's not giving us just fluff. He took the time to write it down, so therefore it matters. There's no flippant or, or frivolousness in what he's uh, describing. So we've got to put ourselves in this location, and it's near the Sheep Gate, it says. Now, the Sheep Gate, you may not ring a bell to that unless you just read Nehemiah recently. That's really the only other place that he gets talked about. Nehemiah, when he's leading the, the exiled Israelites back to the promised land that they're supposed to be in, he rebuilds the wall. And where he starts is the Sheep Gate. Starts that way and works his way around to build the whole wall. This is on the northern point of Jerusalem. And the temple kind of tucks up in it. And so it's probably called the Sheep Gate because sheep were brought in and out of there for the sacrifices needed in the temple. Nevertheless, that's where it is. Uh, and it's uh, outside that wall is the Pool of Bethesda. So Bethesda just means outpouring of grace or blessing. Uh, and that's what these pools are. They're, they're spring-fed pools, but it's on the other side of the wall. It's past the temple is where these places are. And actually, they got rediscovered in 1888, so we can know we're talking about history right here and not just legend and folktale. This is a real place that real people really were. And it has these five-roofed colonnades. So just, they're just porches, porticos held up by pillars. And there's roofs around where these, this pool is. It's two pools kind of divided, uh, but one major area. In verse 3, it says, who's there? In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed. In these porticos is what it's saying, these roofed colonnades. So these porticos unintentionally became makeshift homeless shelters. So people with chronic illnesses, disabilities in the first century, they invariably become street people. And unless they had family to take them in or friends to care for them, their conditions didn't allow them to work. And if you can't work in an agrarian society, you can't get food, you can't get shelter, you got nothing. So aside from, look at this scene here. There's just this, this sea of people laid out that are paralyzed, lame, and blind. When we, aside from the miracle in Mark 2 where Jesus uh, has those friends lower their paralyzed friend down to the roof, every person that's paralyzed, blind, lame, when Jesus interacts with them, they're either by themselves or they're with other people in the same state. In Jesus' day, nobody is taking care of these people. This subset of the population is ignored and cast aside by people who had the responsibility to be caring for them. But here we see the heart of Christ to move towards these people, these people deemed worthless because of their issues and apparent inabilities to contribute to society in whatever way was deemed well. You know, it sounds like when Jesus is coming into this place, it sounds like David in 2 Samuel 9 when he just says out loud, is there anybody else left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? He's the king now. Is there anybody else that I could just be kind to? And somebody says, yeah, I actually know of a guy. His name is Mephibosheth. He's crippled. His feet don't work. And David says, get that guy and bring him to my table. 
I want him here. Christ is showing that same kind of, he's the son of David, that's kindness. He sought out this scene. I mean, this is important for us to see because those colonnades aren't on the way to anything meaningful. They're north of the temple, farther north than, than he would ever need to go as far as being there and participating in the ceremonies and, and the feast. He chose to go all the way up there to walk right into the middle of this tangled jungle of despairing hearts and tormented bodies. He chose to go there. Now, verse 4. Well, wait a minute. There is no verse 4. If you have an ESV Bible or NIV Bible, you do not have verse 4. You see that? It ain't there. What happened? Well, you just got a bum copy. That's what I'll just tell you right now. Like, you should take that back to Lifeway and get you a new one. No, in the ESV and the NIV Bible, there, verse 4 is not there. And if you have an NASB or a New King James Bible, it, that verse is in brackets and it has a footnote. Now, we need to explain this because I, I need to explain this to you because you need to know that you can trust the Bible in your lap. And I'm going to tell you why you can trust the Bible in your lap, even though there's a verse missing and it seems like whoever printed this thing can't count. What's going on here is you have a textual discrepancy. This verse, so the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 is in question among biblical scholars as to whether or not it actually belongs in the Bible. This kind of thing happens occasionally in the New Testament. It's always marked, it's always noted, the end of the Gospel of Mark and then portion of John chapter 8. Those are kind of the significant places about that. Why we can trust our Bibles in this is what I want to explain about this. How do we get our New Testament Bible, uh, the New Testament we have here, we get it, what we have, we, I mean the collective church, about 6,000 manuscripts of the Greek, uh, ancient Greek, I mean, dating back to about a millennia and a half old of these manuscripts. And what they do is they compare all of these manuscripts, handwritten copies of the New Testament, and then th that's where our New Testament comes from. Occasionally, there's a discrepancy. These manuscripts say this, this manus these manuscripts say that. Now, why we can trust our Bibles in that is because none of those things are ever any major piece of doctrine. It's never like, well, you're justified by faith. This one says you're justified by works. Like, well, what is that? It's never that. It's mostly word order. This one says Jesus Christ, our Lord. This one says the Lord Jesus Christ. That's 99.9% .9 of the discrepancies. So that's irre irrelevant. That's just a, a copyist error. But then you have something like this. And what we have here is a, uh, an issue that a scribe probably wrote a footnote, a, kind of a, a marginal note, to explain verse 7 when he was talking about verse 3. Because verse 7 is going to explain why he thought that the, the layman had to get down into the water. And so this is added in there as a marginal note. And then after it gets copied and copied and copied and copied, somewhere down the road, somebody handwriting it just writes it right into the text. Instead of leaving it off in the margin, writes it right into the text. And how do we know that? Because when the, the guys who assemble, the scholars who assemble the New Testament, when they compare manuscripts, they genuinely defer to the oldest one. Why would you defer to the oldest one? Because that's the one that's closest to the time when the thing actually happened. So that one should have more authority. And the oldest manuscripts, the best, most complete manuscripts, don't include those verses. So we can have confidence in this because here's what, those, what, that, what the edited portion says. 
It says that they were that these blind, paralyzed, and lame people were waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at, a certain, at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever diseases he had. So that explains verse 7 when Jesus talks to the guy, and we'll get to that. But here's what that, that textual note just kind of gives us, that marginal note. It seems to be that amongst the desperate, the marginalized, the homeless, the invalid population, there was a superstition that randomly... When nobody knew, an angel would just come down from heaven, stir up the waters, and whoever jumped in first got healed. That's why they're all laying around by the portico. They're enslaved to this superstition of false hope. And often, this is what happens, this, this superstition, this urban legend, the people who are most entangled by that are usually the most desperate, the most hopeless these disparaged people groups get ensnared by these kinds of things. So our story is going to take us to zeroing in on one of those particular people. One who's been ensnared by this local urban legend. Look at verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. For 38 years, this man has known nothing but hopelessness, immobility, physical immobility, and we don't know if he's 38 years old, was born this way, or if he contracted it and has just had it for 38 years. Some kind of paralysis, some kind of severe weakening. He's lived a life of just being cast aside. Doesn't have anyone to take care of him, has to fend for himself in a world that only the fully abled could make a living, could survive. And in an agrarian society, the inability to do manual labor meant a lifetime of begging on the street and probably an early death. That's what it meant. But why mention the length of this guy's affliction? No detail is frivolous. Why mention the length of it? It shows that this guy was not a plant that Jesus put in there to kind of boost up the notoriety and visibility of the ministry. Everybody knows this guy has been crippled for almost four decades. So him hopping up and walking around is not going to be like, well, I don't know. I mean, that guy's pretty new here. I think I saw him walking one night when nobody was looking. This is the real deal. This will be a legitimate miracle when it happens. So how will Jesus interact with this man who's been bound in immobilization, poverty, desperation for 38 years? Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, before we kind of get into the, the, the miraculous of it, let's just look at some things. Who found who? Who spoke first? Who initiated the conversation? Jesus found this guy, and Jesus initiated the conversation. So isn't this contrary to the other miracles we've seen? How did the water get turned into wine? Mary initiates and comes and tells Jesus, hey, this needs to happen. She starts it off. What about the, the miracle we saw last week? The man comes all the way from Capernaum, 16-mile walk, and says, heal my son. He initiates. But this miracle is different. Jesus initiates. And let's be sure to note this as well, that Jesus is surrounded by a tangled jungle of lame, paralyzed, and blind people. And he goes and talks to one guy. One guy. They're, everybody's laid up under these five porticos. What we can see here, God just being free to choose whom he will. And there's a Great quote from Spurgeon about he, when he preached the sermon on this 
better than I could ever preach it. He said this. He said, Jesus performed an act of sovereign, distinguishing grace. He says, I pray you do not kick at this doctrine. If you do, I cannot help it, for it is true. I have preached the gospel to every one of you as freely as man can do it. And surely you who reject it ought not to quarrel with God for bestowing on others that which you do not care to receive. If you desire mercy, he will not deny it to you. If you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you will not seek mercy, rail not on the Lord as he bestows it upon others. You could see him preaching that to the people laying around there. Were any of them saying, Jesus, please heal me. You're the guy we've heard of. None of them are saying that. Some guy way out in the sticks in Galilee heard of Jesus and paid attention last time he was in town. And he ran to Jesus. None of these other people are asking for anything, yet Jesus still will dispense grace. Jesus is going to come and intentionally dispense grace to this man after asking him a question, do you want to be healed? Seems like a pretty obvious question. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. What's his answer? His, this man is so lost and so enslaved to the superstition that man has made that he doesn't even answer it. Yes, I want to be saved. He doesn't even say that. He's ensnared by the lies that he's been told and he can only think in categories of falsehood. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be slave. He just says, I can't get down to the water fast enough. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be healed. Now, it may have been that this pool was fed by intermittent springs of water that when, the, when it would rush in, it would kind of make them bubble up. And people may have thought, well, if you get in when it's bubbling, then you'll get healed. Or it may have been that they, he was really enslaved to the urban legend about an angel coming down once in a while and nobody knows when and, and doing it. But regardless, his hope is in legend and superstition. All he can say is, I'm not fast enough to get down to the magic water. Or I'm asleep when it happens. Hey, are you volunteering to be my handler, stranger? Will you pick me up and toss me in? Sit around and wait for the water to get stirred up? He doesn't say, yes, I desperately want to be healed. And the way I've been going about getting that healing for 38 years has not been working. Do you know another way? Do you know any other way? Can you do something to help me and save my life? He doesn't say any of that. You know what? This is, this is what the modern charismatic faith healing movement is exactly like. Those with true debilitating ailments never get healed. But somehow everyone with uneven legs gets healed. And everyone with internal knee pain gets healed unverifiable, nothing real, but nevertheless, those with cerebral palsy and stage four cancer and documented blindness never get healed. They just keep coming back to the healing services, hoping that at some point they can push their way to the front. And the faith healing movement of today is an anti-gospel sham that further suppresses desperate people with false hope. How come this paralyzed man never thought to think, hey, every time the water stirred, I've, been, I've had this problem for 38 years. There's always somebody faster. How come that guy can jump up and get down into the water and I can't? Maybe he's not that paralyzed. How come that person can run down there without running into one of the columns? Maybe he's not actually blind. 
Maybe if he could walk and carry his weight, he's not actually lame. This man's the victim of these manipulation tactics, the same ones employed by the faith healing movement of today. Because what's the answer? You're not healed because of your own lack of faith. It's your fault. God wants to do it, but he, he won't do it unless you're, you cooperate. It's your fault. Try harder, believe purer, and maybe next time it'll work. Here we have this multitude of suppressed and controlled people by the actions of a few who can always get down and outrun them to the water. And wouldn't you know it, only the first person who gets in the water gets healed. God's got a one-person limit. And if you, that's just kind of the bum deal, but it's the best thing in town. This paralyzed man's world, it, it, it's the same as the faith-healing world. It masquerades as the exaltation of God's miraculous power over nature. But what it truly does is it limits God and it makes God the servant of a few anointed. But it doesn't do anything for people. The salvation, this is salvation by works. This is what it is. Otherwise, faith healers would have run out of business. And think about this. If all people who flocked to faith healing services were truly saved and were confident about that, were truly healed and were confident about that, why do they keep coming back to the same faith healing services? I mean, if you were really converted and confident that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and Christ has paid it all and that your ALS is gone forever, why do you keep coming back and trying to get to the front? Maybe it's because there's not the real gospel there and there's actual no healing there either. Now the real Jesus is going to display real divine power at this scene by the pool. Look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Was that a question? Was that a conversation? That was not a suggestion. It was not a cooperative act. It was a divine command from the mouth of God. That's what it was. And notice Jesus doesn't engage in conversation. He doesn't go, man, I wonder, bro, why is it that you're waiting around here for so long? You know, I want, yeah, I, I want to kind of just get to know you a little bit on this level. He doesn't do anything like that. He doesn't press into his answer. Why'd you answer me so weirdly when I said, do you want to be healed? Doesn't do that. He just says, get up, pick up your bed and walk. And verse nine, at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now we got to see here. He heals the guy without the guy's consent. Just does it. I mean, the faith healers insist you have to have strong enough faith in order to be healed. Therefore, when you're not healed, they can blame that on you. You didn't want it bad enough. This guy didn't want it at all. And Jesus just did it for him. He heals this man without just demanding a show of faith. Show me a little bit of faith and then I'll give you what you want. He didn't do that at all. Why? Because he's God. And when God wants to do something, he just does it. When God wants to heal, he just does it. Doesn't engage, just does it. Because he has the true power over humanity that he made. And God's power is not limited by the wobbly faith of people. Now, to what extent does he heal this man? Think about a guy who's never walked in 38 years. Imagine that person's legs. I don't know if you've seen anybody who's been in a wheelchair or has had atrophied body parts. 38 years and is undergoing severe malnutrition because he's not getting real food. His legs are basically bone with skin stretched over it. I mean, you're, you're talking like I can grab his leg like this. 
And Jesus says, get up and walk. I don't know if you've ever been around anybody who's finally <clears throat> gone, undergone surgery and they've had their spinal cord able to be reattached. And they go through, they, they can, they're, they're wobbling. They got the railing to kind of help walk on because their, their legs can't carry the weight. But not only can this man jump up and carry the weight of his own body, he can pick up his bed and hold that weight too. This is instant true healing. It would have been a miracle if Jesus had just reattached his spinal cord. But he didn't just do that. He made him be able to instantly overcome 38 years of non-use. That's new life. That's power over creation. That must be the one who said, let there be light. And there was light. Because he heals this man and he immense, instantly has new life. And look at Jesus' ministry methods. He heals this man to stand up and walk away from the pool of Bethesda. He says, get up and walk. Lead, go that way. He doesn't start a healing service right there among the multitudes. Jesus is not trying to make himself famous by his exhibition of divine power. And clearly his purpose on earth is not to come and heal all the sick because he only heals one guy out of what does it say in verse 3? Multitudes of invalids. He heals one guy. He intentionally heals this one man without explaining who he is, without insisting on an offering of faith, without offering physical healing to anyone else, and without an intent to draw a crowd. That's Jesus' ministry method right here. Here's what Jesus was saying. Just as the water in the pots at the wedding of Cana, the ritual cleansing water, was insufficient to be the new wine of the new covenant, just as the water in Jacob's well in Sychar and Samaria was unable to provide eternal life to the Samaritans, this water at the pool of Bethesda cannot heal those who are spiritually lame, blind, and paralyzed. Jesus is the real and living water. So that's the sign. Now let's get on the on-ramp because it's about to go fast. Verse 9. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Wait, 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 wait. This is their reaction? This guy's been crippled and paralyzed for 40 years? And you wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what today is, bro? Put that bed down. That's their reaction? I mean, this is an indisputable display of supernatural power over the created order. And they are after a ticky-tack rule in the rabbinical law. That's what, they're, that's what they're obsessed over. They totally ignore the miracle and obsess over minutia. This healed man, he was in a world enslaved to superstition. And these Jews, meaning code for the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, those types, they're enslaved into a world of fastidious legalism. Both are enslavements. Both are distortions of the gospel. And both put all, all the emphasis on man's efforts. Get down in the pool and you got God's grace. Keep all the law and you got God's grace. That's man-centered religion. That's, that's anthropocentric worship. Look at this from Jesus' perspective. Everywhere he turns in the land of God's chosen people, he sees man-centered religion of just various shades, shapes, and colors. Nowhere. Minus the ministry of John the Baptist, can there be anybody found humbly worshiping the Almighty God the way that Almighty God said to worship him? doesn't find anybody doing that. The, stupor, the superstitious, they wait by the water, obsessed with fixing their physical maladies, totally uh, 
ignoring their spiritual plight. The legalistic, they make the law an end unto themselves and not heart rendered, heart worship rendered to God. So these people, they're more willing to miss Christ in order to keep their laws. Now to be thorough, if you read your whole Bible, you get to Nehemiah 13 and Jeremiah 17, it does say this, do not bear a burden on the Sabbath. Don't carry anything on the Sabbath. But you know what those burdens were? Those burdens were specifically product to go and sell. That's somebody doing their job, making money, not trusting God to provide for them and keeping the Sabbath. That's them doing work in order to provide for themselves, not trusting God. And this man's burden, what was it? It was a thin straw mat just to keep himself from getting really bad sores from laying on the concrete, laying on the rock all day. These Jews, they're enforcing the word of God in their minds, but what they're really doing, there's a commentary on the, on the Old Testament law called the Mishnah. And that they wrote out, well, <clears throat> I mean, the Sabbath is kind of vague in the Old Testament. Let's just make it specific. Here's 39 things you can't do on the Sabbath day. And lo and behold, guess what number 39 is? You can't pick up anything from some place and take it to another place on the Sabbath. And this guy was violating that rule. Not God's word, man's word. In verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. How does this contrast with the Samaritan woman? What was she doing? She, she meets Jesus, has this interaction with him, and she's running all over town. Could this guy be the Christ? Y'all got to come and see, come and see. She can't stop telling people about Jesus. And this guy's like, I don't even know who it was. See, he told me to do it. He doesn't want any trouble. He just wants to take his miracle and go live his life. So he passes the buck to Jesus. And passing the buck works. Look at verse 12 and 13. They asked him, who is the man who told you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Passing the buck worked. They don't care about this guy anymore. They're going after the other guy who had the audacity to tell this poor person to defy their man-made laws. They're, all, they're going after Jesus now. This is interesting. The man doesn't even know who Jesus is. He has no idea who healed him. He doesn't even think to ask in the moment, who are you? He just goes, awesome, and then leaves doesn't even think to do that. Is it possible to receive blessings and have no concern for where they came from? Can we do that as humans? Can people have good things in their lives that they know they didn't work for and they know they didn't earn and they know they don't deserve and then not be grateful at all for it? What about celebrate Thanksgiving? It's my favorite holiday. Uh, you're going to hear one day about the legendary Sanders turkeys. Not yet. I'm still learning. But one day you'll hear. I love... I'm trying to get in. I'm going to get Callie to teach me really how to fry this turkey right. I love the lack of commercialism. I love the lack of materialism. It's just family and friends and getting together and thanking God. But have you ever paused to think about in the United States? Who is everybody else thanking? That, I mean, that we have a national holiday. It comes printed on calendars and already pre-bloated on your phone. Thanksgiving. Who are we giving thanks to? Who is everybody else thankful to? The, that, the whole point of the holidays is to say what you're thankful for, right? Even secular TV shows, the tripe is always when you go to around the table, say what you're thankful for and something always happens. But who are you thankful to? 
You can't be thankful to nothing. When you say thank you, it means I've been given something that I don't deserve and I didn't have on my own. You gave it to me, so I express gratitude for it. That's inherent in the word thanks. So who is the rest of the world? We're not the rest of the world. We're the only ones that celebrate Thanksgiving. Who is the rest of the country thanking? I mean, are they thanking no one? Are they thanking themselves? You can receive blessing and have nothing to show for it. And thank no one. So now when the healed guy turns back to look for Jesus, he's gone. A crowd came around. A ruckus was building up. And so he's not there. He slips out the back. Again, it's pretty contrary. You drew a crowd. Now's your moment. Shine. Tell everybody. You got the crowd there. And he says a crowd comes and he leaves. Pretty contrary to our notion of how we should be doing ministry. But in verse 14, it says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. How'd the second interaction go with the paralytic? Jesus comes and finds him. If Jesus doesn't come and find him, that guy was in no way concerned with going and trying to find Jesus. No way concerned with coming and saying, thank you, gave me a new lease on life, I can't believe this. It was never going to happen. He didn't find Jesus, Jesus found him. This man seems plainly indifferent towards Jesus' true identity. And Jesus says, you've received a blessing. You, look, you're healed. Now stop sinning. Now, what that should have elicited is a response like this. Thank you for this blessing. But wait a minute. I am a wretched sinner. All I do is sin. Even when I'm paralyzed, all I can do is sin. How do I stop sinning? And then the gospel comes. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Anyone who believes in me shall not see death, but I have eternal life. But that never happens because the guy doesn't say anything. Nothing like that. Not everyone responds to blessings and miracles like Naaman does in 2 Kings 5.15. You know, Naaman, he's a commander of the pagan army, and he comes to Elisha for healing, and he just says, all you got to do is go dip in the Jordan River seven times, and your leprosy is gone. He didn't want to do it at first. His servant talks him into it, then he does it. And then when he comes out and he's totally clean, then he says this, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And then he's like, Samuel, I mean, he says to uh, Elisha, what do you want? I'm going to give you everything. Here's all this money, all this gold. And Samuel, Elisha says, no, I don't want that. This gratitude that he feels, the same gratitude that we'll see later in John 9, 38, when that blind man is healed, who'd been blind from birth. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Not everybody responds like that. Here's something that I don't think that we contemplate very much as Christians. Good things happen to bad people every day. Good and bad in scare quotes, just to kind of get the picture across. Adulterous men do make full recoveries from prostate cancer. Uh, abusive mothers do get promotions at very high paying jobs. People steal equipment and it prospers their business. That one came to me fresh last weekend. I was talking to a friend, a mentor in my life, older man, and he has a septic tank business. And somebody, it was locked up. Somebody just went back and stole his trailer, his several thousand dollar trailer with a several thousand dollar backhoe on it. And they just hooked it up. They waved to the security camera, hooked it up to their truck and drove off with it. They called the police. The police said, hope you have insurance. We're not really going to do anything about this. So now they have a backhoe and a trailer and can go and do their business and they're going to get away with it. 
That happens all the time. At times, I think we just fixate on the reality of bad things happening to good people, and we define good for ourselves or people define it for themselves. What should shock us more is good things happening to bad people, to godless people. But does God speak to this? Are they going to be held accountable for this? Is there any kind of order to this? When the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is talking about the righteous wrath of God coming upon unbelievers, there's one repeated element to them, one characteristic to them that the Bible talks about. It's most clear, Romans 1, 18 and 21, when it says, For the wrath of God is revealed, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And here's what they do. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor his, him as God or give thanks to him. When the Bible's outlining somebody who's worthy of the condemnation of God, their thanklessness to God is another exhibit A, exhibit B on the trial of their guilt. Their thanklessness. This man should have realized the truth that was right in front of him. He should have responded to Jesus saying, go and sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you with something like this. I've been paralyzed for 38 years and that's the worst thing I could ever imagine. Hopelessness, poverty, homelessness, bitterness, anger, frustration for 38 unending miserable years. What could be worse than that? Jesus, tell me, whatever is worse than that, I don't want that. That should have been his response, but he doesn't. He fears the Jews more than he fears God. Look at verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. You know, I don't think he turns Jesus in spitefully. I think he just does it selfishly. I, th I think uh, he knows the Jews, these Jewish leaders can ruin my life, and now I have legs that work, and I am not going to blow this. And if those guys are mad at the guy who healed me, these guys I'm going to be dealing with the rest of my life. This guy I talked to for a few seconds and then I got healed. I'm not getting in between that. I'm just going to tell him that it was him so I can be out of this deal. I don't want to be in the middle of this in any way. I want to take my miracle and go home. He seems to me uh, like everyone in cultural Christianity in the United States. Yeah, I'm down with Jesus until it costs me a promotion or popularity, or peace. What I love in my life more than anything is prosperity, popularity, and peace. And Jesus is fine until associating with him costs me anything in the way of those three idols. And when that happens, I'll punt Jesus because I want these things more than that. And that's where this man is. So that's the, that's the on-ramp. But now we're on the highway. We've made the destination. This is the highway that the whole thing's about going to the cross. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In other words, he wasn't following the man-made legalism of his day. He was following God's word and not man's distortion of it. Now Jesus is on the radar. Now He's not a one-hit wonder like they thought he was back when he cleansed the temple. Lots of guys try to make a name for themselves when everybody's in town and you know, they want to show themselves as being the true and right and all that. This is a one-hit wonder. He'll go away. He's not a party magician like they thought he was when he turned the water into wine. 
He's not a, a specialist clinic that deals with individuals like they thought he was when he heals the official son. Now he's a legitimate threat to the institution of lies. And he has to be dealt with. Jesus drove the car to this destination on purpose. Did Jesus know what day it was when he walked to the pool at Bethesda? Of course he did. And if this guy, he, which he knew supernaturally when it says in uh, verse 6 that he had knew that he had been there a long time. He knew that guy had been there a long time. What's one more day? Just wait till Sunday. Don't do it on the Sabbath. Don't cause all these problems for yourself. He went there on the Sabbath on purpose and heals that guy during the feast on purpose. His healing was intentional. It had to happen. Him being hated by the Jews and marched down the, the, the road that leads to the cross on Calvary's hill was not an accident. It wasn't a tragic um, mishappening. It was the plan. It's the plan to have this happen. So let's two takeaways, and then we'll be done. Two takeaways from this passage that we end with verse 15. The first one is the point of this miracle is focusing the reader's attention upon Christ. The point of the miracle is not the guy. This is the point of every miracle in the Gospels, is that you should be looking at Christ. But this one's especially helpful and obvious because this man doesn't repent of his sins and doesn't trust in Christ. He doesn't even know who Jesus' name is until he gets pressed on it. And when he finally catches Jesus' name, he just goes and tells the angry Pharisees. He already knows that they want to do something bad to this guy. And he goes and tells them. So we can confidently say the point of this miracle is not the actual healing of the guy who'd been lame for 38 years. The point of any blessing that happens in our lives is to focus our gaze upon Christ. That's why. That's the point. We're never the central focus of the story. Christ is always the central focus of the story. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Not from me, through me, and to me, or for me, but for Christ. That's the point of the miracle. That's the point of all miracles. And this one is most obvious. And secondly, this one kind of takes away, this one kind of punched me in the throat this week. It's interesting that when Jesus is finally now under the hatred of the authorities and the powers that be, the one who receives the blessing of his miracle abandons him. They don't abandon him at the wedding at Cana. They don't abandon him when he heals that uh, official's son. They're happy for him. They're like, wow, this is amazing. This is impressive. This guy's a big deal. When he does all those miracles at the end of cleansing the temple, they're all like, this guy's something. But now that it's going to cost something to be identified with Jesus, the guy who even received the miracle is unwilling to identify with him. Now that Jesus is in peril, I think it's easy for us, I think it's easy for me to become faithless when I don't get what I want from God. I think it's easy to do that. I think a poignant takeaway from the story would be this, that God is worthy of our worship regardless of whatever he gives me or doesn't give me. That we can learn the opposite of this guy's story. He got what he wanted and ran from God. I think what I need to apply to myself is I've been given so much that I could have ever have wanted from God and I still run from him. R.C. Sproul, he said it like this in his commentary. He said, we need to remind ourselves 
that if God never blessed us another moment for the rest of our lives, we would have no reason under heaven to do anything but glorify him, adore him, and be grateful to him for the blessings we have already experienced. If he abandoned us tonight, which he certainly will not do, but if he did, we would have no excuse to do anything but serve him until we draw our final breaths. Let us learn from this man how not to receive the blessings of Christ. I think that's what we learn from this as a personal takeaway is that we receive the blessings of Christ by identifying with him all the way to the end and that we don't hold our reverence, our discipleship, our love for Christ hostage until the ransom is paid by God giving me what I want. Because even if he didn't give me what I wanted, I got what I could never deserve, which is eternity in the presence of God, in the loving presence of a heavenly father. So everything after that is kind of irrelevant. I, I had a, a friend, I'll say this in closing and then we'll pray. I had a friend at a pastor's gathering one time when he was praying, and I'll never forget this, the way he prayed it. He said, Father, our names are already written in the Lamb's book of life. What more could we possibly ask you for? And I was just, that hit me. What else do I want? Nothing. Lamb's book of life? <laughs> I, I, everything else after that is what we in Texas call gravy. Because we got the Lamb's book of life. Christ paid it all for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look at this man and we don't want to look down with disdain or some kind of, uh, of, of arrogance, holy, pious arrogance that we would never do this. Father, we receive things from your hands every day that we don't thank you for. And then when we ask you for something and it doesn't come our way, we throw fits and we get angry. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive me of those childish temper tantrums. And Father, let us see the, the, the grand purpose of this miracle, of all miracles, of all blessing, of all goodness in life. It's not meant for us to just be distracted from you even longer. It's meant for us to have the, the gold in our hands, to have the blood in our veins, to have the air in our lungs and the rain on our crops. And we don't look down at them, but we look up at you. And I say, why on earth? Would this come down to me from you? Father, may we be a people that are like that. May we be a people that are eternally grateful, that are willing to suffer along with you when it becomes unpopular to be associated with you. But let us also be like this Samaritan woman in chapter 4 and not like this paralyzed man in chapter 5. That we don't care what it costs us. We're going to run around and shout your name and tell everyone to come to you for water that wells up to eternal life. May we be a people like that, Father. May we be a people that, that go to the places like the porticos by the pools at Bethesda where the, the lame are, where the despair is, where the pain and suffering is and bring the light of the gospel. Lord, to do good, to clothe the naked, to visit the prison, to feed the hungry, to give, thirsty, or to give water to the thirsty but to also come and sit with the main priority and focus to tell of them about bread that wells up to eternal life, that water that wells up to eternal life, that healing that is permanent and irrevocable.
and that's internal and not merely external. Let us be those people for your glory uh, alone. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.